I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Our guest, Michael Lewis, is the great tailspinner of money in the second Gilded Age in America. He's part muckraker, part Mark Twain, too, for turning up classic characters as good as the King and the Duke and Huckleberry Finn, except that Lewis's guys are real on Wall Street today. The good, the bad, the geeky, the banks, and the traders making billions, most of it in the dark. Michael Lewis has an opening take on what has happened, really, what's still happening in the financial system since the meltdown. And then the technologist and company builder Jeremy Allaire, who's betting that Bitcoin, the internet version of money, could be better than what we have. And the political economist Alex Gurevich, who wants to argue that politics is the problem and the only solution. John Lanchester in London, the novelist of Capital, has a very funny observation of what this age of money is doing to the landscape of his city. Call it our continuing series on the money machine called capitalism. On Boston Common this week, we asked people what money means to them. Money? I wish I had some. I think they should get rid of money and go back to trading and farming and stuff like that in industry and putting people to work. The movement of markets is positive. I believe in capitalism. It is a motivator. It rewards people that come up with clever and interesting ideas, but it also has the ability to reward clever people with bad ideas. We put money on our card because it's easy, and then we have to accept the fact of the matter that people are doing things behind the scenes with it. There has to be an underlying current of trust, otherwise we'd be squirreling money in mattresses and jars and burying gold in our yard again, which is something none of us want to do. As ordinary people, uh, middle-class people, we really don't have a clue as to all of the machinations and things like the World Bank and even our own Federal Reserve. What are they doing? Why is my money in a savings account not earning a dime? We begin with the writer Michael Lewis. His latest is Flash Boys, with a reform twist about the first tentative checks on high-frequency trading. I asked Michael Lewis for one word to describe the market at the heart of our capitalism. He said it's rigged. Yes, absolutely. The rigging of the stock market is something that has happened since the financial crisis. That's the amazing thing. Most of the problems have been introduced partly by well-intentioned regulation since 2008. So what's changed on Wall Street in the last five years? You know what the biggest change is? overwhelming self-pity uh, that the people who are in the big banks, I mean, they may not have perpetrated the crisis, but they were at present at the scene of the crime, feel unjustly hated and blamed by the rest of the society. They have a victim mentality, which is weird, but mm. true. And they feel underpaid because their bonuses are being constrained in different ways. They feel under siege. We had a great thing going, in other words, but no remorse, I take it. I have never encountered it. It's the most amazing thing. And I think the reason is that we as a society fail to shame them properly. If you look at the last great Mm. financial crisis, you look at 1929, at the back end of that, you had these hearings in the Senate, the PCORA hearings, and, and people got put in jail. People were humiliated. People lost their careers. Wall Street left that period afraid and deeply shamed. And it really served as a kind of governor on the system. For It's easier to regulate people who are afraid you could actually do bad things to them. And, mm. and I think that having emerged basically unscathed allowed for a different emotion 
and a kind of a different emotional response to the whole thing. They feel that anything that's done to them is unjust. They still have status and they still have their sense of self-importance and they still have the same friends. Maybe that's the underlying theme for me, that the elites remain the elites and the truth-tellers are still kind of kooks or too virtuous to be true. That's true. It's a problem that people who speak truth to power right now get quickly classified as oddball as opposed to important. I mean, it may be, have always been thus, but there is a big problem in the culture of, our, of elites. I think what's happened, and it's partly because of the structure of the institutions, let's just keep it to Wall Street, the elites lack a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. They lack a sense of responsibility to the larger society. They have a responsibility to their shareholders, to the bottom line, to achieving short-term results. But there isn't a sense of, for lack of a better phrase, noblesse oblige. It's been drained out of us. And I think it's been drained out of us because the people who are sitting on top of these institutions don't have any sense that they're partly lucky to be there, that there's a social fabric that made them possible. They think that they deserve exactly what they got. They are the end result of pure meritocracy. Political question. Has our presidential change agent, Barack Hussein Obama, missed his chance to change things fundamentally? And you've played basketball with him since you and I talked about it. So I would say no. He hasn't missed it, that it's not over. Um, It's getting late. It's getting late. I would say I don't know they were wrong. In my heart, I think they should have broken the banks up because what happened was by allowing them to get even bigger, they allowed them to gain even bigger political influence. So they queered everything that happened after it. And I think also the financial sector cannot be underestimated as a metaphor. It is the metaphor for what we think is just in the distribution of rewards. It could have had a huge cultural effect, I think, to say the first thing we need to do is fix this place because it has it bleeds into every other aspect of our lives. Maybe the market will disrupt this because it actually isn't sustainable in the marketplace. But I can understand what they did. I, this is sort of like one of those decisions where if you presented, if you made me president and said, Michael, you want to break up the banks and risk chaos in the, the stock market and so on and so forth, it might give me pause too. But if I knew how it was going to end, where we are right now, I would have much less compunction about creating chaos. I'd say, you know, we may have to suffer a little bit to get rid of this cancer that's in the middle of the society. These institutions that are exempt from market forces, that have a sense of kind of entitlement, it's unbelievable, that have incentives that are so screwed up that they can get rich, bringing us to our knees. It needs to be fixed. It's too important. You know, we ask people on the street, what's to do about money? And some wise guy with an accent said, you know, go back to barter. Let's just get rid of it. Money's useful as a means of exchange, as a store of value. Money is useful. Money is not the problem here. Problem is the structure of the system we have to handle the money. It is true that in the places in the economy where large sums of money need to change hands, there is a tendency for a lot of either destructive or completely useless activity to go on. People collect toll booths around it so that they can take a little slice. Because when you have large sums of money moving from point A to point B, you can take a little slice off of it and nobody really notices it. But when you add up those pennies, it's billions of dollars a year. It would be useful if our financiers were a lot lazier and less bright. Mm. You know, I think it would be a really good sign if the bottom half of the class of Princeton instead of the top half 
ended up on Wall Street. It would be very helpful. So they go to journalism. <laughs> That's true. It would be really useful if bankers were known chiefly for their solid family values and their desire to be home with their kids at five o'clock. The financial sector has been the site of a lot of really destructive entrepreneurial behavior. Great ingenuity, great energy, but the actual consequences for everybody is horrible. We're in a funny period journalistically, I keep feeling, where you can actually talk about the warts, worse than warts on capitalism. I wonder, is this the best system in sight in our lifetimes? Is it endangered by all the shenanigans you keep writing about? I think it is, but there's not a system to replace it. Uh, so it's not ideologically, it doesn't feel ideologically endangered right now. It feels more like it's, it, it's self-destructive because not, there's nothing to keep it in check. I felt this way when I was watching the response to the financial crisis. If the financial crisis had happened in a world that had never tasted socialism or communism, we would have had a radical political upheaval. But the problem is there's nowhere for that upheaval to go. It just, so they just fizzle out. Everybody kind of understands that these alternative systems have their own problems. So it's not as if there's an ideology to replace it right now. It's not beyond the human imagination to dream one up, but it doesn't exist. A guy that fascinates me, Tony Jutt, went to his grave prematurely saying there was an alternative. And we had it in Europe and the States in the 70s. We didn't call it social democracy, but in Europe they did. Capitalist economy with, with all kinds of social guarantees in transportation, housing, education. He grew up in London in the 60s and 70s. Free education made him one of the great minds of our time. And he says we're, we're letting that go without a fight, and it's a scandal. Those were his last words. Well, there was a fight, right? And capitalism won. Mrs. Thatcher and Reagan fought those battles. It isn't that there wasn't a fight. And in defense of the other side, which if you lived in London in 1981, 82, 83, as I did, there were an awful lot of problems <laughs> with, with the old system. I mean, there was a horrible inefficiency there. It was dreary. And so the truth is more complicated. I think that capitalism has overshot and there does need to be some clawing back. And I think we're seeing it a bit. Obamacare is that, right? The battle's still being fought. Problem is, the argument against putative free market ideology, and I say putative because, you know, what's going on, on Wall Street has nothing to do with free markets. These are government-sponsored institutions. They are not subjected to market forces. If they were subjected to raw market forces, they'd all be gone. So the problem is, it's a rigged capitalism. Capitalism's name is being used to do things that aren't capitalist. That's part of the problem. And part of the problem is there's a streak, at least in our society, that I think is totally idiotic, that believes that markets solve everything. And markets fail every which way. So the intelligent approach is non-ideological. It's asking where do markets work and let's use them there. And where do they fail and let's fix where they fail. And let's do it with a sense of decency and moderation and understanding that there are people who are weak and people who are strong. But that's messy and not ideological. It's sort of boringly sensible. <laughs> I think Tony Judd would sign on for most of what you just outlined, although he'd also spur us by telling us to believe our own intuitions of imminent catastrophe in the system we have. I agree with that. The system we have is very dangerous. So... 
I'd be with him on that. That was the financial writer Michael Lewis. There's a longer version of our conversation on our website, radioopensource.org. Coming up, the Silicon Valley version of money called Bitcoin. It's virtual and global. It's in the cloud, not in your pocket. A cryptocurrency dreamed up in 09 in response to the financial crisis. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. In the age of money, what are the alternatives? Consider Bitcoin, internet money. Our guest, the serial and hugely successful entrepreneur Jeremy Allaire, likes to say that his new project at Circle is building a safe, solid, user-friendly platform that would make Bitcoin in place of banking just as easy as email for messages and Skype for phone calls. Jeremy, welcome. I'm a Bitcoin newbie. We'll get to what it is, but first, why? What is the connection to the meltdown of 08 and what problems that Michael Lewis is talking about? would it solve? Yeah. Thanks so much uh, for having me this evening. Very excited to chat. I think, you know, it's really interesting to hear Michael speak and the reaction uh, to the financial meltdown, I think is really interesting and very clear. The creator of Bitcoin, pseudonymous or anonymous uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, in his original white paper, specifically called out some of the aspects of the financial crisis, the centralization of uh, economic and monetary power and what that led to in terms of economic results for people. And even the, the literally the first uh, time Bitcoin was used on the public internet, uh, he put a little bit of data in the first block, what's, what's called a block of mined Bitcoin. The first Bitcoin ever created had a quote from the New York Times, which was a specific reference to the you know nationalization of the banks and the bailout of the banks. And so there was a very clear reference there. And it, it's really anchored in what I like to think of as um, internet DNA and internet DNA being a belief in decentralization, a belief in mm. open, uh, open source uh, technology, open source ideas uh, of democratization of access to whether it be information or communications or or in this case money that dna is very much a core part of i think the origin story of bitcoin and it very much is reflected in the enthusiasm that you see from entrepreneurs technologists others all around the world it's really a belief that wait a minute there have been some fundamental issues here in this global economic system, and it's failed us. Uh, it's failed us, you know, in many, many very clear ways. And, and that global economic system, in a way, is the last bastion that's, that has not been dissolved by internet DNA. Internet DNA is, is dissolving the New York Times in front of our yeah. in front of our eyes. Sometimes we celebrate it. We love the open source idea. But remind us what what is so universally uh, wonderful about disruption it isn't so much disruption because you can you know when the nazis invaded prague that was disruption but it wasn't very good disruption probably but i i think um the origin of many of the foundational pieces of the internet that we take for granted today uh the ability to freely communicate with anyone anywhere in the world the ability everyone's got a global printing press the ability to uh, eliminate some of the geographic and cultural barriers that have existed. Um, 
you know, this sort of openness of ideas and media and communication. Speak for is, yourself, absolutely. I mean, it's the Emerson faith. Very Tr- much so. Trust so, thyself. Every heart right. vibrates to that iron That's strength. Right. So there's Do these, it your way. There's these democratic ideals that are core. And interestingly, and you see this very much expressed in Silicon Valley, is there is a, a kind of libertarianism that is there as well, a belief in technical innovation, a belief in the ability for uh, creative... Uh, technology to shape society. And that's also, I think, part of what informs this. But critically, you know, the financial system is a closed, centralized, hierarchical system controlled by governments and large corporations. The Internet's the opposite of that. You know, what government controls the Internet? Why should money, Jeremy, be anonymous, untraceable, global, invisible, you know, why, did, why must it live in cyberspace when we so love it in our pockets? Well, it already lives in cyberspace, irrespective of Bitcoin. You know, the, the dollar is just a database that happens to be controlled by a centralized institution, and we rely upon the accuracy of that database to determine how much money we have at any given time. And so it's already digital. Uh, it's just centralized. It's, not, it, it's, it's sort of like AOL uh, before the Internet. Uh, Money is in a world of walled gardens that are controlled either by governments or centralized private institutions. And we're looking at how do we take money and make it more like the Internet? How do we make it distributed and decentralized? How do we make it open so anyone can improve it? How do we make it global so it's not my country's money versus your country's money? It's a global system of value exchange. So a lot of the things that are really critical values in what's, I think, made the Internet really important are now playing themselves out in this world of finance. But, but what problems has it solved and is it going to solve in, say, 10 years, even 50 years in terms of access to credit, which might be lovely to make it more democratic, but also security, safety? Which of the, of the today's problems is it going to address? You know, right now, um, you know, the, the, the technologists that are directly involved in Bitcoin, the technology, are very much the first people to say this is an experiment and it's still in beta. So we're still at a phase where, you know, no one should take this too seriously vis-a-vis, you know, what we're doing every day out on the street and, and in our economic lives. It's still very early. Um, but to your question of where does this go over 50 years, you know, I think – there's some fundamental pieces here. One is the idea that uh, money can be nation-state independent. Uh, what does that look like? How can we have a system of money that's independent of any given country? A second is how can we eliminate the, the results of centralization? The results of centralization are you have people who take tolls all along the way, this right. concept of intermediaries. And these toll takers that exist in all of these facets of the financial system, is there a way to run this the same way that the web runs or email runs or other things run where those things essentially happen for free and the toll takers aren't there? There's a lot of other, I think, significant ideas here too. In terms of ideas and intellectual roots, one thing puzzles me. This is often referred to as a kind of – it's been branded by Silicon Valley. It's their style. It's their baby. What does that mean? In terms of the thinking behind it, the goals, yeah. as well as the cleverness. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I've read a lot of Michael Lewis's books, and so it's a good touch point to, to think about this. A lot of things that he's covered have been 
references to quote unquote financial innovation. And when we think of innovation, we typically think of technology. In the case of many of the things that we saw play out, or not just in the financial crisis, but before, these were innovations, mathematical innovations, risk-taking innovations inside of traditional finance. I think in Silicon Valley, things like Bitcoin and digital currency are viewed as financial innovation, but for the first time, this is financial innovation that's happening outside of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that we can reinvent how is money stored, how is it used, how do people create equities, how do they issue stock, how do they trade that globally, freely, without intermediaries. Uh, it is um, it is a very much a outside view of how do we disrupt and change this. And that's what's gotten so many people excited, is that this is not coming from inside of Wall Street. This is not out of the fount of hiring all these, you know, tremendous mathematicians and putting them to work, you know, building new risk models on, on, on Wall Street. It's really technologists all around the world who are saying, can we make a better system? Can we improve the way in which people can access and use money? Can we provide access to finance to the global unbanked, to billions of people who've never had access to participate in the global economy? Jeremy Allaire, hold those Bitcoins. I want to introduce Alex Gurevich. He teaches political science at Brown University, and he writes about political political economy and workers' rights on sites like Jacobin and Salon. His new book is titled From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth. Welcome, Alex Gurevich. Uh, leap in here. Which of the problems... I mean, prioritize the problems. Set an agenda here for economic reform of the Michael Lewis persuasion, of the Jeremy Allaire variety? Where, where, where do we have to go? Well, first off, uh, thank you very much, Chris, for inviting me uh, to Pleasure. this conversation today. It's a lot of fun to hear all kinds of utopian ideas and criticism <laughs> uh, floating around. Um, you know, I love the vision that Jeremy spells out of democratic disruption of the economy. Uh, but I have really big doubts about whether you're going to get real democratic disruption of the economy through some very creative but hard to understand new technology like Bitcoin or any number of other kinds of technologies. I think you're much more likely to get something that really challenges the roots of contemporary inequality, of the power of financial markets over the economy. You're going to get real disruption through mass political action, uh, through things like uh, um, workers going on strike, Mm. uh, more robust activities by labor unions, um, sort of strong alternatives to the two-party system uh, that are willing not to just kind of change the money we use, but that are willing to challenge the basic structure of ownership and control over wealth uh, and the workplace. I mean, it's a tall order, but since we're talking in sort of quasi-utopian terms right now, um, I just have really big doubts about whether technology, especially something like just a new money, is going to solve any of these problems. I mean, to give a couple reasons. And yet it does have these kind of rehumanizing, universalizing, Mm -hmm. uh, egalitarianizing, Mm -hmm. uh, at least implications. But um, go back, and nothing but tall order tonight. Mm -hmm. Alex, you heard in our Vox Pop on Boston Commons the line that workers... On market wages have been dependent for 200 years, yeah. not a new condition or a new complaint. I've read you yeah. quoting a worker from 1829 to the effect that 
Thousands among us subsist on the unnatural operation of free and Republican institutions, so we call them, institutions that made the few among us arbitrarily and barbarously and enormously rich. What's to be done about it? What's to be done about it is changing the distribution of ownership and control over the basic economic assets of the society. Now, how do you change uh, how do you radically redistribute wealth in this society? I don't think you do it by changing the currency we use. That's my doubt about Bitcoin. I think we change the distribution of wealth by doing things like socializing ownership or promoting the development of cooperatives. Let me make this concrete. Uh, Michael Lewis sort of mentioned we should have broken up the banks or you could have socialized the banks. So we could have opened up the books and really seen what was going on and then seeing if the lending was really being lent for real public purposes uh, or, whether it was, or whether it was really just sort of dicey uh, shenanigans that everyone around this table and Michael Lewis and, uh, uh, himself thought was the primary activity of what these big banks were engaged in. Or to give another example, Uber, this massive $20 billion business, so-called sharing economy, isn't a sharing economy at all. It's owned by one of these fancy tech companies. And then all the workers get very poor wages. You could turn that into a producer's cooperative where all the Uber drivers who own all the capital anyway, who actually, well, which is to say the cars and the gas, and do all the labor, actually share in the profits. That's a way to turn something into a truly cooperative enterprise. But whether we put this and denominate all this stuff in dollars or in Bitcoin or whatever, it's not enough to change the currency we use. I think it really – there's no way around changing uh, the actual distribution of, of uh, financial and, there, and other there, assets. There are all interlocking questions here. But as Michael Lewis questioned, I mean, first of all, how, do, how, how is money to be dethroned in terms of Wall Street's power, but how is it even to be dethroned in our culture? It now so dominates the minds of mm. kids in college in terms of their uh, what they're studying, where they're going, what their ambitions are, what the traps are that they know. Um, mm. Where do you begin and and tackle them? I mean, everybody's mystery is is where is the resistance to mm. where, where where is the union movement going for? Yeah. For out loud. Where is, where is uh, solidarity of any kind? But I wanna, begin. Or, I, I want to come, come back to there. a couple of these points, which is um, one of the really interesting things that's come out of, of digital currency, Bitcoin, and things like it is um, there's an underlying uh, technology which is really based on this idea of what's called cryptographic trust. And... I'm not going to delve too deeply into it, but the important thing is that the a lot of the most creative technologists that are looking at this are not looking at this simplistically as, is this a new system of money? They're actually looking at this as saying, can we build new globally distributed and decentralized systems of organization, of uh, redefining the definition of a corporation to build what are called distributed autonomous corporations or uh, distributed autonomous collectives where uh, through free association, individuals are able to enter into um, uh, collective contracts where they share equity collectively in a endeavor and where that can be verified in a, in a, in a you know, automated fashion. 
and where there's a, a system of value exchange that sits behind it. The point is that until today, if you wanted to create an entity that produced things, you had to do it within the laws of a given country. And you had to do it on the basis of the legal tender of that country and the system of exchange of that country. There's never been a way for people free associating around the world to construct institutions that are democratic and are collective and that have an economic basis that they can use and do that in a straightforward fashion. And so a lot of the visionaries that are involved in digital currency are actually really thinking about what's the infrastructure of society and the economy that we're going to have in 10 or 20 or 30 years. And it gets to, I think, something that Michael Lewis referred to earlier and you asked him, which is, is there an alternative to you know, state capitalism as we have it today? And And he sort of said, not sure, don't really see it. And my question is, is there, is there something in the internet and the internet's DNA which could enable um, organizations of people, not, not just political but economic, to effectively create you know, new kinds of institutions that reflected uh, some of the values that we're talking about here today. And those we're are We're still actually, learning. I mean, we, we still don't know for sure what the expressive implications are of, of a basically free system of interconnection at any level you want to, want to do it. But what's your guess? You know, I think... Um, uh, it's interesting. I think on the one hand, we're moving towards a world where it's it's much easier for individuals to participate in an open and free and more democratic system of communications and finance and things like that, and that will take place. But at the same time, the very nature of these things is highly globally integrated, and uh, we're faced with issues that ultimately have to be solved at a global level. And Let me so, ask you, Alex, do you see a politics in this kind of technological impulse? Or do you see it as technology sort of playing itself? Yeah, I, I, the latter. I think that this is an attempt to bypass politics on the way to these utopian self-organizing uh, kind of economies. I, I do love the image of a self-organizing economy one in which people can associate transcontinentally or internationally. Uh, but most production takes place locally in a particular factory in a particular place. And when we talk about actual producers' cooperatives, historically, that's what they've been. I mean, we actually have been there before. There have been times even in this country when you had thousands of, of producers' cooperatives. But to do that, you actually need democratic centralism. You need central power controlled democratically rather than the kind of centralized power we have uh, now, which is undemoc largely undemocratic. Are you satisfied that there's more creation than, than disruption in the life of the Internet so far? And I shouldn't have asked that question before the break. We'll be right back. The novelist with John Lanchester, who's written a new money dictionary, is going to survey the architectural markers of the age of money transforming London as we speak. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. John Lanchester got the idea of his novel titled Capital just watching his own modest street south of the Thames in London getting gussied up for the invading investment class a decade or so ago. 
He knew he was looking at a boom that would turn into a bust, but it kept growing. I asked him this week what we all need to know about the new era. I think the main thing is that money is a kind of solvent that dissolves other things. Money's an invention. It's an extraordinary invention. It may be humanity's most consequential invention in a way because it allows us to interact with each other, to trade and to store value over time and to turn our labor into other things. And all those things are very important. But it has this very powerful effect that it ends up dissolving other things that are important to human beings. So other kinds of value, other kinds of meaning, other kinds of purpose get dissolved and you end up with a kind of residue of money so that things that would once have been seen as questions of, of value in the other sense, in the moral or ethical or human sense, end up as questions about you know price, what's it cost? The question, what does it worth, becomes not a question about what we kind of ethically or humanly or religious terms think something's worth or artistically. It becomes what's it worth in terms of money. And I think that's the single biggest way in which the sort of shift from whatever kind of culture we used to have, I'm not sure you could sum it up with one word, to a culture that is mainly about money. I think that's, that's the single big one. Look around your London as you did in your wonderful novel, Capital. It always brings to mind the, the Gherkin building. I mean, where else do you see physical monuments to, to this age? Funnily enough, I'm in my study at the top of my house in South London. I can actually see the gherkin from here. I'm looking at it as I speak. And there's also a building called the Shard, which is the tallest building in Europe, well over a thousand feet tall. And the thing about these new buildings is that they have no context. They're designed to be icons. It strikes me that's a very appropriate metaphor for the kind of unrestricted, devil take the hindmost, winner takes all capitalism that they that they embody it. It's just make as much money as you, on as big a scale as you can and just ignore everything else. One of the mysteries about finance, which is this sort of gigantic, you know, behemoth, it's almost impossible to describe the scale and speed and interconnectedness of these markets. Trillions and trillions of dollars flowing backwards and forwards every day. I mean, just the derivatives market in just London, that's just one section, is one and a half trillion dollars a day. It's impossible to get your head around these things. But then you, when you ask the question, well, what good does it do? What does it do for us? That's actually much hard to answer. It's been much studied by academics, by the way, this thing about the completely free, unrestricted flow of capital across borders. Um, you know, we try to look for a benefit, to, to design experiments to find a benefit. Because um, it's obviously a good thing, right? Because all this money is moving backwards and forwards. It must be doing it to some purpose. Well, actually, the answer turns out they can't find it. You know, you can't find all this money flows backwards and forwards across the world completely freely at will. And the good thing that happens as a result is, and there's just a dot, dot, dot. You know, there's no answer. And the strange thing is that looking back to a simpler age in banking, it's easier to see what the purpose of it was. Because in banking, they used to have this thing called the 363 model, where the banker took your deposit at 3%, lent you money at 6%, and was on the golf course by 3 o'clock. You know, which is nice work if you can get it, but it's also the case that that's really useful, because sometimes we have excess cash, we want to put it somewhere safe, and other times we need to borrow money, we want to 
start a business or buy a house, buy a car, whatever, and then we need to borrow money. And the 363 thing actually really works. It's really useful. Whereas a lot of, most of the other stuff these institutions get up to, you know, what's it for from the point of view of wider society? And I've yet to hear any answer at all to that question. John Lanchester, if we promised you one thousandth of one percent of all the money that swirls in London every day, would you pronounce it a good thing? One of the unfortunate things about this money is that I don't have any of it. And <laughs> I, I, the, the super rich seem so kind of tormented and messed up and they have such difficulties with it. I'd be so cool with it. I'd just be like the happiest billionaire in the world. And everyone who knew me would be really happy too. And like we'd be having this conversation. I'd say, what the hell? Let's go to the island. And because I'd like to have an island. And everything about having the island would be really easy and practical. And we'd hang out and we'd have a great time. We'd invite a few of your listeners there too. They'd have a great time too. And just everything would be amazing. Unfortunately, it's all these, you know, oligarchs and robber barons have all the money instead. You know, how, how fair is that? That's the question. How fair is that? That was the novelist John Lanchester in London. But it goes back to Michael Lewis. We didn't have this fragment, this sentence in our excerpt this evening. But he said to us today, the thing that attracts me to these financial books and all this material is the persistent attempt by money culture to systematize unfairness, distribute spoils in a way that's really offensive. That's what lights... His fire, and it raises the question for the rest of this hour. I think, what are the real goals of economic reform that really must be tackled? And we know people are in pain. Start us up, Alex. Look, I think the problem in this economy isn't just a question of who has the money, but who has the power and the control. In the United States, you can be fired for being of the wrong sexuality, for expressing the wrong political preference, for wanting to take a bathroom break when your boss doesn't want you to take one. You can be forced by your boss to, to pee in a cup when you don't want to. Uh, and these bosses, especially in this economy, they work primarily to increase shareholder value. Workers have very little power. And so the problem with the economy isn't just fairness in the distribution of money, but in the distribution of power and, of power and control over daily life. And uh, the primary goal, I think, of economic reform should be to increase the power of the average worker, uh, which is roughly the 80 percent of, of America uh, that goes to work every day and, and has to deal with a boss. What does that look like? On a, a raft of different things. I think this is the time to experiment. Uh, much stronger labor rights better mass industrial unions, experimenting with the financing of workers' cooperatives, uh, democratically owned and controlled firms. Uh, these all are ways in which you can uh, not just end up probably more equally distributing profits and money, but also more equally distributing the control over how most people spend most of their life. And that, I think, would be something much closer to real economic justice. Jeremy Allaire, Bitcoin or no? What's mm. the real reform agenda mm. here? Including, for example, maybe for starters, make banking boring and safe again. I think that's exactly right. You know, one of the inspirations behind Circle and, and what we're doing is a belief that when you look at the financial system today, it is just so far afield from the classical ideas of how the average person thinks about banks. Uh, the classical ideal is this is a place where you can securely hold your money. They give you tools to spend and receive money. Uh, if you need a loan, you can get a loan. If you're a person or a business, um, if you want to 
take your savings and help make that available to other people to get loans, to perf- you know, pursue their dreams, et cetera, that those are ways to do it. And what we now have, obviously, on a global scale is something that is very, very far away from that. We have a world where, you know, during the peak of the crisis, you had banks that were creating money at a 30 to 1 ratio out of thin air and doing this in elaborate, exotic, uh, opaque financial instruments that no one really understood. And so we got very, very far away from it. And so from my perspective, and this is, again, speaking as an entrepreneur and as someone working in this, uh, you know, purely from a, hey, what can we build that's better perspective is let's create a world where the implicit tax on the economy that we have uh, that comes from that banking system that we see today, that we can eliminate that so that people can recover that value. And so, you know, globally, there's literally trillions of dollars of these taxes that are applied through intermediaries. And that's just waste. That's not value that the economy is benefiting from that user, that consumers and businesses and other are benefiting, benefiting from, it's actually just value that's being transferred to these financial intermediaries and collecting that at a huge profit. So that's a change. And I think it's getting back to the basics. It's this idea that, you know, if, if someone is in need of money, we have a, a, an efficient way to make that available to them without gouging them with 19% interest and hiding the terms of that credit. Or uh, if you want to save money, if you put it in a bank today, you're actually losing money. It's negative interest rates. We live in a monetary policy that's real. The real interest rates are, are actually the, the government's taking money from you and the banks are taking money from you every time you put a deposit in there. That's the reality today. How do we move to a world where if I want to save money, it's actually going to generate something for me? And so that to me is the, you know, in a, in a frankly somewhat more mundane level is – how do we get back to the basics and improve those, not just for the American economy and for individuals here, but on a global basis? People don't realize that we're in a world today where four billion of us have mobile phones and two and a half billion of those people have never had a bank account, have never had the ability to store value securely, have never had the ability to transact and trade. They've lived in closer to barter economies and cash economies and so don't have the benefits that come from some of that kind of infrastructure. Moving down my agenda, Alex, what would we do practically to dethrone inequality, which we know is the handmaiden of illness, mental illness, crime, tragedy, shorter life expectancy, every imaginable social ill? Where do we begin? How do we push toward something like, shall we say, Swedish equality, which we know the vast majority of this country wants? Uh, Right now, I don't think there's any clear and obvious way you get there. Uh, I think that you're hearing two different uh, ways of thinking about the general form that we could get to a more equal society. Jeremy has a kind of individualist and decentralized vision. And I have a kind of collective and uh, and frankly centralized uh, vision of how we'd get there. It would ultimately only be through democratic control of this economy, not just at the local but at the national level. Uh, I see no way around n- forms of national social policy. Sometimes it might require nationalizing banks, much better labor rights and labor regulations, but those are going to be enforced by a centralized state that is properly under the control of the people rather than uh, the wealthy. But I just think there's no way around. If we really want to democratize access to wealth, 
uh, if we want to really give people robust opportunities, um, including really high quality education, uh, um, uh, um, access to capital, um, uh, guarantees against getting their sort of fingers chopped off at work, there's no substitute for the democratic state. Uh, and the only way you get a democratic state to do those things is through collective action, not just uh, a kind of individual um, innovation. How would we get money out of our minds in a certain way? Mm. And Vox Poppers <laughs> wants to do that too. But how would we uh, right. prioritize the much more interesting and urgent uh, items on the agenda, including peace and care of the earth mm. and its inhabitants Building our culture, yeah. enjoying life. I mean, there are two ways to do it. One is to set up these other values, some of the ones you mentioned. Um, but I actually prefer the other one, which is to take the values that money steals from us, values like freedom, creativity, innovation, and say this kind of money economy, a financial economy, in which the sole purpose of management is the short-term maximization of shareholder value, actually leads to very little valuable innovation, at least a pretty stagnant growth. And it's actually... Money does help you do almost all of those good things, right? Access to goods, access to things, access to computers and to basic security in terms of housing and education and, so, and, and, and health care. That's what allows you to actually innovate. You're actually creating things. Money is the medium we happen to use. But it's access to those goods, uh, to a lab if you're a scientist, right? To, co- to, to computers and other coders if you're, a, if you're a software innovator. Let me ask Jeremy, what, what, what's the financial reform of the financial system that's going to build sane growth for human purposes and unfund war, unfund waste, unfund uh, insane limits of uh, wanton privilege? Yeah. I mean – I, I don't. I don't believe the answer is radical centralization of state power. Um, I think that the results of that could be really disastrous for the world. Um, whether it's purportedly democratic or not, I, I just don't see that. I think um, the kind of creative impulse that exists uh, around the world from people who are trying to create things and solve problems. Um, is stronger than attempting to centralize power and enforce a specific perspective. Um, you know, but, but coming back to um, you know, the question and, and some of those issues, you know, I think you know, what's interesting to me about the reform and change that we're pursuing, that we're seeing pursued in the global financial system is a belief that if we can create a kind of openness and connectivity on a global basis in the world of finance that we've seen in the world of information exchange, that we've seen in the world of communications, that's really brought our world much more closely together, um, that it that itself is significant, that the ability for people to uh, trade and interact and to divide their labor on a global basis is a huge, huge innovation. And ultimately, it's that integration economically on a global basis that reduces the uh, the incentive for warfare, that reduces the risks of uh, of you know military conflict. And today, we have an economic system and a monetary system that's defined by nation states, and that is dangerous because you basically have centralized authoritarian political power over monetary instruments, and those conflict. And so it's a it's about 
again, distributing that, decentralizing that, but at the same time getting on a common platform in the same way that we have a common platform for information today. Alex, what is the, what is the financial system that's going to save the habitat? It's going to be a people's monetary system rather than a banker's one. Uh, we've actually been here before, Chris. I mean, the, this is the second Gilded Age people sometimes talk about. And the first Gilded Age, which I've spent some time looking into, you had these great proposals, actually, where you would have uh, banks who's, uh, that were set up uh, to, to foster the creation, to help basically workers accumulate capital and start up their own cooperatives. But I have to say that the only way you're going to get to anything more like a democratic system is, is with a fight. Maybe that's the – if there's a difference maybe between me and, and, and Jeremy, it's that any time a more egalitarian economy really gets big enough, it's going to threaten the, the, those who really enjoy the benefits of this one and they're going to fight back. And that was the history of the first Gilded Age and it's going to be the history this time. And when we're talking about a fight, it's not just a better currency that's going to get us more egalitarian laws. You're going to have to collect, have collective action. You're going to have political arguments, political battles. People are going to have to form themselves into unions, into parties, and they're going to have to pass laws that favor their side. I don't see any way, other way around that. Alex Gorovich, Jeremy Allaire, thank you both enormously. Listeners, check out our website where we've got longer conversations with Michael Lewis and John Lanchester. And have a look at a big experiment in small money in Massachusetts's own beloved Berkshire County. Our show this week was produced by Max Larkin, Pat Tomino, and Connor Gillies. We had help from Grant Holub Mormon. Our engineer is George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our banker. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs>